This man's legal name is Flavor Flav. Counselor, I'll allow it. Yeah, boy! We're surrounded by super powerful forces. Once they get you in their jails, they can figure out ways of keeping for a long time, Caesar. The workers don't have the vote. It can only be attributable to human error. There are new immigrants in many places. Many of them are not citizens. Most of them don't speak the language. You are now tuned into Fear of a Border Planet. Back again. Yo, yo, yo. Welcome, folks. Missed you guys. It's been, we were just saying it's felt like several years. uh, Time since we got back together. Yeah, so much has happened. There's been a lot going on. A lot has happened in the news world, in the personal life world. (laughs) Yeah, you could say that. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, news-wise, we're not going to catch up with every headline that's happened. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna focus. What are we gonna focus on today? Someone want to give us the rundown? Oh la la well, la! Today, <laughs> in our issue of Fear of a Border Planet, episode three, not only are we talking about the one and only, the seminal, ooh la la, the Fujis. But we also Fugees. are going to be covering uh, refugees, forgotten refugees, the status of refugee resettlement and refugees worldwide. We're going to get into it. It's going to be that's right, uh, good, stimulating, radical conversation. That's the truth. And that's like good. always, we'll start with the depressing stuff, <laughs> the status of refugees worldwide, before we get to the fun stuff, which is, well... I'm not happy about Praz Michelle of the Fugees being found guilty on like ten federal counts, but hashtag we're have Praz. fun talking about. Yeah, you that. can blame you can blame Praz for for the delays in this episode. It feels like every week we just had to add a new section to our agenda because of him. So, so thanks, Praz. <laughs> just to cover the saga. Yeah, we were going to record, but the jury was still out on Praz, and it just. And we had other excuses, and it just didn't feel right, you know? We had to wait for the jury to come back. Yeah. You uh, are having the current pleasure of listening to an esteemed cast of characters, the uh, Fear of a Border Planet crew of co-hosts, starring one's very own, yours truly, Nelson the Mayan, a.k.a. El Comandante de Cuscatlan, Radio Ramon, the Cannabis Kami. Wouldn't be fear of a border planet without Radio Ramon. Not even going to ask if Ramon is part of your name. And all the aliases but... to come with. <laughs> no. <laughs> it is now. <laughs> there we go. What's up, everybody? It's Jami, a.k.a. Jami Astute. Back again for another uh, episode of some good content. Had some fun listening to the Fugees over the last couple weeks, so mm-hmm. I'm excited to get into it with you guys. Thank you. All right. What's up, everyone? This is Ramis, uh, a.k.a. Still Don't Have 
a nickname, a moniker. I think last time I stole Jami's, so this time I'll steal Carrie's. Yeah. So this is Ramos, a.k.a. the Brown Wizard. <laughs> <laughs> there is a Brown Wizard, too, actually. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you don't want to be like Radagast. Yeah. He's just like this shroomed out psycho in the horrible hobbit movies okay i won't get into that but i will i will give you this he lives in the woods and the white wizard approaches do not let him speak he will put a spell on us we must be quick that's me (laughs) carrie aka the white wizard do not let me speak Okay, let's go forward. So, uh, let's roll right into the serious topic. Today's episode is about forgotten refugees. And what do we mean by that? We're talking about the fact that there are millions of people all over the planet who have been displaced from their homelands and who our world, our global community, has been unable to give a decent livelihood to. And I mean, we've been trying this for 70 years since we've had an international refugee resettlement system, and it hasn't been all bad. There's been successes. The fact is we have more refugees on the planet than we ever have before. And many of them still wait years for resettlement if they ever get it. And many more are simply blocked out of that resettlement system wholesale. So when I talk about a refugee, what do I mean by that? It's someone who's been pushed out of their country because of persecution. And usually it's the United Nations that has to designate someone as a refugee before they can get resettled. This is a system that was set up soon after the founding of the United Nations, which was in the wake of World War II, Part of the reason that the whole UN and what's called the UN High Commissioner for Refugees was started is because World War II had displaced so many people and the Western powers were like, uh, what are we going to do about all these like peasant Poles and Czechs? Uh, You know, are we just going to let them all go to the Soviet Union, or are we going to figure out a way to resettle, redistribute them throughout the Western world? Uh, so from that, the UN's national International Refugee Resettlement System was born. Take me to the United Nations. Right. General Assembly building. Right. When the UN agreed to start doing this, it also relied on the member states, the countries, to accept resettled refugees. The U.S. got off to a bumpy start, but thankfully by 1980, under esteemed President Jimmy Carter, uh, we signed the Refugees Act of 1980, which formalized the U.S. system for accepting and resettling international refugees. Uh, That was one of the last positive pieces of immigration legislation that we've had. Globally, the UN and the High Commissioner for Refugees remains the main player that establishes refugee camps, designates people for refugee status, and handles the resettlement. 
They work with a huge network of these massive nonprofits called like the International Rescue Committee, Jewish Family Services, Lutheran Immigrant Refugee Services, these huge kind of mega industrial nonprofits. So you can get designated as a refugee if you meet the definition, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to get resettled. And often you have no control over what country you get resettled in, even if you may have family in a specific country. So do we think after 70 years of practice, you know, this is a working like a well-oiled machine? Not. No, not. Uh, there's a lot of shortcomings. And like I've already alluded to, there's more refugees in the world than ever before. Extremely long wait times for resettlement this narrow definition of what constitutes a refugee. Many people in the Americas, many people who leave their countries of origin in the Americas for things like gang violence, for things like gender and sexual violence, climate change, none of these groups who are pushed out for those sorts of reasons meet this technical definition. The worst part is that as we get more refugees, developed nations are trending towards admitting fewer refugees. And in the U.S., our refugee resettlement system was basically obliterated under the Trump administration. It's clawing its way back now, but it went from under Obama, some credit to him for increasing refugee admissions quite significantly, but then Trump has the unilateral power to just take it back down. And that has a huge effect on this infrastructure that is needed to set up refugees in a new place with a new life. Jami, why don't you give us some of the numbers? Yeah, so perusing through, researching for this episode, found a lot of uh, a lot of interesting information. According to the UNHCR, at the end of 2021, there were more than 89 million individuals uh, worldwide who were forcibly displaced due to persecution, conflict, violence, human rights violations, and other events um, disrupting the public order. Of that 89 million, 83% were housed in low to middle income countries. And then on the U.S. side, about 57,500 refugees were resettled in the U.S. in 2021, which is two-thirds greater than the year prior. However, still not nearly enough being done on the U.S. side. Considering the fact that the U.S. has the capacity, the resources, and the room to be uh, a major, one of the major safe havens uh, for refugees, but if you take a look at some of these numbers, it's quite obvious that that less equipped countries are actually pulling the lion's share of, of the work as far as uh, housing and resettling uh, refugees worldwide. Uh, for instance, That's Turkey, right. for instance, Turkey houses one uh, 3.7 million refugees currently. Uh, in Colombia, the number is 1.7 million refugees, followed by Uganda with 1.5 million, Pakistan with 1.4 million, and Germany with 1.2 million. For one, I, I thought that was 
that was really interesting. I mean, the fact that there's a land such as the U.S. is so vast, yet mm-hmm. so vast and so plentiful with resources and could quite literally do a lot more <laughs> to to help uh, house and resettle more refugees than, than what we currently do. But it's other yeah, lower income developing countries that that are housing the great majority of refugees. It's really messed up. Yeah, I think that's such an important point because it gets lost in the conversation. Refugees get talked about as like as if they're like begging to be admitted to Western countries and just want like Western benefits when the reality on the ground is that it's developing nations that are shouldering the huge amount of the burden of, you know, taking in persecuted people. And a lot of refugees are actually content to be in those developing countries that are closer to where they are from more similar, but those countries are just under-resourced and not only are we doing a bad job taking people in we're doing a bad job providing resources to those countries that do actually take people that in. do right right and speaking of some of those countries some of the largest refugee camps are the dab in kenya kakuma in kenya zaatari in jordan kuta palong in bangladesh and um rukuba in sudan Refugees in these camps are still facing a lot of the same issues. A lot of these camps have become overcrowded. Uh, there's a lack of protection from disease and illness, not to mention exposure to natural disasters, um, access issues with access to gainful employment. And these are just some of the issues faced by refugees in these camps. Well, thanks for running through those numbers, Jami. Do you have more, or should we move forward? I think we can move forward. Talk about some case law. Oh, Rocks. we're definitely not talking about case law. Um, <laughs> although, you know, now that you mentioned case law, we can talk about some of the legal stuff. Because uh, if you think about it, um, the word refugee is really like a legal term, right? It's a legal status that someone has. A more, you know common term that uh, you can call a refugee as a person. I mean, like if you think about the history of human civilization, uh, we are prone to moving around, whether that's down the street or to a a different part of the world. Um, Obviously, modern technology and transportation has made that uh, faster and and more vast, but also the modern uh, kind of political system has made that harder. The term refugee, the whole process of becoming a refugee and and seeking resettlement really only exists because we have built up these borders and have realized, okay, maybe we want to poke a few holes in these borders um, in, in a humanitarian sense. And so when we're talking about refugees, we're really talking about kind of the legal status that someone has in the modern kind of international political world of how do I access these set of of rights and benefits that allow me to participate in the, you know, centuries old tradition uh, of of movement, of of migration. When we're talking about refugee status, you know, at the very least, the American context, you know, there are legal definitions of of what has to have happened to you or, or who you have to be to qualify as 
a quote-unquote refugee. Um, and in the U.S., at least, um, and this is a, a definition that's based in international law, you are a refugee if you've faced, uh, and, I'll, and I'll quote, a well-founded fear of persecution on the basis of race, religion, nationality, uh, political opinion, or membership in a social group, a particular social group. We can get into case law on case law, but generally, there's a lot to unpack, lot there. To unpack there. But generally speaking, these are kind of like, uh, you know, concrete groups of, of people based on some sort of characteristic. I'll give you an example from an asylum case I worked on a few years ago. Uh, my client was a journalist uh, who whose whole job was to criticize the government and the government persecuted him as a result. He uh, he fell into a social group of journalists who criticized the government. doesn't have to do with his political opinion. It doesn't matter who's in office. His job as a journalist was to criticize mm-hmm. the government. Um, and, and so he fell into this kind of group of journalists. Can't do anything about the fact that he is a journalist and the government knows he's a journalist. And so because of that characteristic of kind of his identity, he, he uh, qualified as, as a refugee uh, or an asylee in that case. And you might hear the term asylum as well. You know, legally speaking, you know, they, they asylees and refugees kind of flow from the same legal principles. They've all faced persecution on, on the basis of the, you know, the categories I mentioned, race, religion, etc. The The main difference between a refugee and an asylee is that in order to seek refugee status or resettlement uh, in the U.S. Uh, or in whatever country you're seeking uh, refugee resettlement in, you're applying for this status from outside of that country. And so if, you know, I were a Rohingya Muslim um, who was fleeing Burma uh, into Bangladesh, I would be applying for uh, a refugee status um, as, I, as I'm a, a refugee from, from uh, Burma in Bangladesh, applying for, you know, resettlement to, you know, whatever country I'm, I'm, I'm uh, assigned to. Asylee, asylum status is if you're, if you're able to get to that country, in which you're seeking refugee status, you can apply for asylum once you kind of step foot um, on on that country's soil. And so you hear a lot about asylum. Or or can you? Or can or you? Can That's you. a whole, yep. Or can you? In theory, in theory, you step foot on American soil, you can apply right. for asylum. That's becoming less and less and less and less and less the case, especially with uh, kind of the adoption of, of newer technologies and kind of digital application processes, this increasing practice of of uh, countries coming to agreements as far as uh, expelling uh, asylum applicants back into the country that they were uh, kind of passing through. And so you hear about asylum a lot with the southern border because that's kind of like physical presence. People are, are you know, crossing into or attempting to cross into the United States uh, through its southern border. and uh, And because they are physically present or attempting to be physically present in the United States, you hear more about asylum than you hear about refugee status. Legally speaking, you know, to qualify, it's kind of the same set of experiences, um, but uh, but it's kind of different situations. You hear more about asylum at the southern border because the UN and other organizations have failed to set up an adequate refugee infrastructure in the Americas. They failed to designate legitimate refugees who have left their countries in South and Central America as such and kind of just let them use the ever-shrinking American asylum system mm-hmm. instead. Right. And another you know, distinction you see is uh, 
that there's technically a cap on on an annual cap on refugees. So if you're applying for resettlement uh, from outside of the U.S., the president has the authority to set a cap every year saying this is how many refugees will be taken, taking in, in theory, this year. So in 2023, that cap uh, was 125,000 uh, refugees in the United States. That cap doesn't exist for for asylum. If you are able to apply for asylum, you're, you're not facing any particular cap, but you are facing about 100,000 other logistical, legal, political issues when applying for asylum. And and yeah. and the last thing I'll mention is I also want to recognize what's not reflected in this whole legal process of obtaining refugee status or asylum status. You know, I mentioned uh, that we're talking about persecution on, the, on account of race, religion, nationality, political opinion, social group. What you don't see in there is a reason a large number of people are forced to migrate from their homelands is, is economic reasons. Yeah. Precarious economic situations in various states and countries, a lot of which are the result of decades of exploitative and destructive American foreign policy. And yet America doesn't recognize uh, kind of economic migration uh, or, or forced migration for economic circumstances um, as, a, as a valid reason for refugee status or um, asylum status. And that's tied in with this ever-increasing phenomenon of climate migration, whereas the quote-unquote global south gets warmer because of the actions, uh, the collective actions of uh, kind of the global north, you're seeing a lot of people migrate north uh, for more temperate climates, being forced to migrate north because of how terrible uh, climate situations are getting um, in, in warmer climates. That's also not recognized um, as a matter of, of law when it comes to refugee status or asylum status. Our refugee infrastructure, our asylum infrastructure is a political choice. It's it's simply not reflective of the human condition. Uh, the reason why so many people want to move, have to move, um, it's, it's a very, very limited hole that we've poked in our borders. Um, nowhere near adequate, um, but the lawyers and the, the law adjacent people on this podcast are, are, are forced to deal with this system all too often. And it has its you know successes, its benefits. There are so many uh, kind of life-changing stories that, that we've encountered through the system, um, but it's nowhere near the system we need. Ramos, the only thing I want to add to that is you talk about how we have this cap now of 125,000 set by Biden and we're not coming anywhere close to meeting that. And a big part of that is that Trump had the power to unilaterally decimate the resettlement system by when he reduced the cap from Obama's 125,000 to 7,500, I believe. Wow. And so before that happened, I don't think we were super far off from resettling 125,000 a year. But the problem is that requires a huge developed network of nonprofits around the U.S. who do this refugee resettlement work. And suddenly, when the number drops to 7,500, what do all those workers do? They get fired. It takes a yeah. long time to claw, claw back from that. And I think that's being cited as one of the reasons that even though the cap has gone back up, it's not just like flipping a switch. It's a, 
it's just this is one of many examples of how a president can do long term damage yeah. to a system and inflict harm all over the world. Right. And 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 to pick up on one other thing you said that I, I forgot to mention is you mentioned nonprofits and NGOs. Um, you know, a little glimpse into the refugee resettlement kind of infrastructure in the United States is that it's just that, you know, the, the federal government, the president sets the cap and kind of acts as, as the bottleneck and the processor. Um, but who's really doing the resettlement is this network of nonprofits across the, uh, across the uh, country. And, and like Carrie mentioned, for the reasons Carrie mentioned, it's, it's woefully inadequate. The State Department recently announced uh, kind of a, a new system. Uh, kind of a supplemental system called the Welcome Corps, where it gives kind of like, you know, get your neighbors together uh, and sponsor a refugee. Um, and so this is kind of just like further outsourcing what really is a government obligation to resettle refugees, um, not only to nonprofits, but to, to private citizens themselves. Um, and so this, you know, it, it's in in some ways it's hopefully going to facilitate the resettlement process, but it's just reflective of a decades-long trend of outsourcing government obligations to the nonprofit slash private sector. It's a little bit like when Walmart puts out like a donate canned goods bin for their own employees. Right, and that's going right back in the cash register. <laughs> yeah, right, and it's like, oh, you Walmart can't pay your employees enough so you're asking customers to donate like oh the u.s government who's flush with cash can't put the bill or put together the resources to resettle refugees so you're gonna ask you know good samaritans to chip in i mean it's a good thing for good people but it's passing the buck america passing the buck america passing the buck <laughs> since 1492 yeah it's pretty nuts like just the ways that in which the system can kind of just shift uh to those responsibilities that you would think would fall like what is the purpose of a government if not to perform functions like this and serve the people not just right. people of this country but people of any, you know, any people who want to be here, right? Because we it kind of feels like police, but yeah, this welcome core. It's just kind of Biden saying, like, okay, you woke liberals, you figure it out. <laughs> you know, you you care yeah. enough. You all wanted the, you guys wanted them. <laughs> you you asked for a way to resist and to fight we the power. The well, here it is: sponsor refugees <laughs> for us. It's like, okay, well, sorry you can't handle it yourselves. <laughs> My proposal for refugee resettlement in America is if you live in a house that, like, by a certain amount of square feet, like, times that, like, you don't need that many more square feet than you currently occupy, right? So if you own multiple houses, sorry, some of those houses belong to refugee families now that's just how it is you you're gonna turn rick ross's mansion into the rohingya refugee community <laughs> center in a heartbeat <laughs> yeah i support that <laughs> and and then lil wayne can perform for the refugees 
I think they need other things. Yeah, sorry. Uh, no, this this reminds me of, of my favorite, one of my favorite books is uh, Exit West by Mohsen Hamid. Oh, I've read that, um, yeah. It's a, a fantastic book in my opinion, but it's, I mean, it's uh, essentially a book about, uh, you know, being a refugee. Um, and it has kind of like, you know, magical realism elements in it. You know, these kind of mysterious doors where, you know, essentially portals that take you to a different place. And it's, you know, not as simple as, you know, what if borders didn't exist? It's kind of more like, you know, what if there were actual holes in borders um, where you could teleport from one place to another? And there's one chapter where a bunch of refugees walk through a door into this mansion, I think, in the UK that's vacant because, you know, someone's rich enough to have a mansion without needing to live in it. Um, And they kind of just take up residence in there for for weeks months at a time um that's what's up it's a beautiful scene but yeah yeah, i highly recommend the book that's lovely it it is a good book i really like the beginning where it's like a love story in i feel like it's supposed to be damascus but they never name the country like as it kind of disintegrates into civil war it's really good yeah anyway what are, what are we a books podcast? Come on, Ramis. Uh, nerds, <laughs> nerds. Yeah, this is the 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 book club segue. <laughs> There's big headlines right now about forty asylum seekers who were killed in a fire in a uh, immigrant jail in Mexico. Oof, we're going there. You know, the fire was active. It was actively ignored by prison officials and you know five people have been arrested and charged with homicide including the country you know mexico's top immigration official who was warned time and time again that you know this facility was basically operating as a sort of um you know extortion machine that you know you pay a certain amount of money and you can get out of the jail yeah. Or, or if you don't pay the money, you know, the longer and the harder they bury you. Um, and, you know, this is the end result. So this is the kind of treatment that um, refugees and asylum seekers around the world, um, because, you know, remember, this isn't even in the U.S. Like, we have very plenty of plenty of terrible, awful immigrant detention facilities across the u.s but um the rest of the world is unfortunately you know keeping pace as well the ways that our you know governments around the world are choosing to address these issues largely um only serve to you know metastasize these issues and make them spread and grow even further like a cancer you know Mm -hmm. biden and trudeau and another headline recently announced a deal um and biden also recently announced a deal with mexico too so there's both deals with both mexico and canada to block asylum seekers you know asylum seekers crossing from the u.s into canada are now you know going to be more actively blocked from entering um non-mexican Asylum seekers coming into the U.S. on the southern border 
can be more easily expelled, you know, with Mexico's blessing. Biden announced as well, you know, he's going to be setting up little stations across the Americas now. So people can just go to the little stations and apply there. And so they, you know, really enforcing this idea of don't come. Do not come. Do not come. We may be, you know, us bleeding heart Democrats, you know, diversity is our strength, blah, 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 blah. But we don't actually want, you know, people. Yeah, with those stations. I think that's an expansion of what was called the Central American Miners Program, which was also under Obama. It was bas- It was a good thing. It was a, basically a way for um, either kids or sometimes adults in Central America who had family that was already legally in the U.S. to to find a path to come here that didn't involve taking the route. But like you said, yeah, it's just a way of trying to deter people from people coming away. by saying, oh, yeah. wait, there are options to do this without leaving your country. And then those options are like extremely narrow and difficult to access. Yeah. And not to mention the fact that these, like, it gives them another excuse as well. Like if you can't show up trying to seek a sign, like, oh, well, you didn't go to one of the stations. That's probably going to be completely overrun, right. underfunded, um, not, a viable option for most people at all. You know, oh, you didn't apply at the station? Well, you got to go back and apply at the station. You know, that's why we set it up there, even though it doesn't work and nobody, you know, I'm going to be very surprised if it uh, actually has the kinds of, you know, funding and resources that it needs to adequately serve people. You know, on, on the other hand, you know, when refugee resettlement does work you know the work that these ngos do do you know it's incredible work and they do do a lot as well to you know make people feel home and make people be able to find a place to really resettle and so the people that do end up getting to you know make it and resettle you know and they have incredible these incredible inspiring stories that you know i feel like we really like like to celebrate in our culture and they are stories worth celebrating but it's also worth remembering that these are the lucky few as opposed to the vast majority who still need help and you know my family was like one of those lucky few i feel like and we didn't (laughs) you know we had to cross illegally nobody gave us refugee Mm. status because they were Salvadoran, and the U.S. was backing the Salvadoran government at the time. There's a lot of crises happening all over the world. A lot of folks showing up from Venezuela, from Haiti, uh, from Central America. Who's getting admitted? Ukrainians. The the most politically aligned with the U.S. as well as. Um, the, the whitest of the folks that are coming over the border. And that's not to say Ukrainians shouldn't get, you know, that opportunity to seek refuge. They absolutely should, but it should be grant, that granted the same to everybody else as well, including all the brown and black folks that are coming through or trying to. Well said. Well said. Thank God. Just, it's just kind of taking me back to, 
you know, where at least three out of four of us used to work and, mm-hmm. you know, you know, we did work really close with Ramis, with Ramis' organization as well. He and was just, kind of one of us. Um, <clears throat> Basically. Yeah, he was he was basically one of us. <laughs> Honorary man. Uh, Someone else was paying me, but I was um, working for you. <laughs> <laughs> and just thinking about that work and thinking about um just like Nelson said, the stories of some of these individuals that were coming over and um <clears throat> and just the sheer seemingly impossibleness of making that that journey. You know, yeah. I think we should just all take a page out of the book of a true OG, an open borders radical. And of course, I'm talking about Ronald Reagan. Now, I think we should play some bars that Reagan himself spit. How about it, guys? Uh, let's see these Reagan bars. <laughs> Rather than putting up a fence... Open the border. Rather than making them or talking about putting up a fence, why don't we work out some recognition of our mutual problems, make it possible for them to come here legally with a work permit, and then while they're working and earning here, they pay taxes here. And when they want to go back, they can go back and they can cross and open the border both ways. By understanding their problems, this is the only safety valve right now they have with that unemployment that probably keeps the lid from blowing off down there. And I think we could have a friend, a fine relationship, and it would solve the problem you mentioned also. Rather than putting up a fence, open the border. fire wait carrie did you mix that <laughs> did you do that maybe <laughs> <laughs> famous <laughs> abolitionist ronald reagan <laughs> you heard it here first folks you heard it here all right let's talk let's get into our actual musical interlude la, la, la. we need to hear from some real folks who had know some real stuff about this kind of Fuji's lifestyle. So let's get into it and fuck Ronald Reagan. We'll show you how the refugees do. Yeah, yeah, behold, this my old manifold on your rhymes. Two MCs can occupy the same space at the same time. It's against the laws of physics. So we bet your sweet dreams break up like the rhythmics. Rap rejects my tape deck, rejects projectile. To cheer you up, we're going to talk about the Fugees. Yes, sir. Or I guess if we're a true fan, you don't include the. It's, it's just Fugees, yeah. I, I learned that recently when I was like listening to their music on Spotify. I'm like, oh, wait, it's just Fugees. <laughs> Fuji's. I've been so uncool my whole life by saying the Fuji's. You know what's uncool? I think I just realized in the last few years that Fuji's, like why why it's called Fuji's, uh, and I just I was like, oh, that's a cool random name, mm-hmm. Fuji's. Oh, um, oh just, man, I just clicked for you. Just, yeah, <laughs> like the refugee kind of connection. Yeah, and so. Yeah. 
So so that was in my 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 mid twenties. It took me. It took so me why is it? Why are they called the Fujis? My understanding is that they came up with the name. They being the three members: Lauren Hill, Pras Michelle, and Wyclef Jean. That they came up with the name chiefly because Wyclef was an immigrant from Haiti, and at the time, refugee was kind of used derogatorily to refer to Haitians and they called themselves the refugees or the Fujis to kind of rehabilitate the word, glorify the yeah. word a little mm-hmm. bit more. So Lauren and Praz were from Jersey, um, grew up there, but uh, Praz was Wyclef's cousin. So I imagine Praz has some Haitian roots as well. And Wyclef uh, was born in Haiti, immigrated to the U S at age nine and ended up settling in New Jersey, where he met Lauren Hill and Pras Michelle. The three of them pioneered a style of hip-hop that was so original for its time. Its time being the 90s. is a short-lived, flash-in-the-pan group, as you'll see. But they captured the moment with this blend of reggae, R&B, funk, and hip-hop. Occasionally even rapping in Haitian Creole from the singing that you hear from Wyclef and Lauren Hill on so many songs, incorporating a lot more R&B than was common at the time. Nowadays, we're so used to the rapper Sanger and the, you know, hooks by R&B artists on rap songs, but it was, it was pretty original for the time. So they, this group put out a grand total of two albums, <laughs> Their first album from 1994 was called Blunted on Reality. And then their album from 1996 is called The Score. This was a number one global classic score. An absolute classic. I I, want to say iconic. I realized in our in our public enemy episode, we said (laughs) the word iconic probably a hundred times. Uh, But I will. I will bring it back here because the score is an iconic album for its time and beyond seven times platinum. And then right after the score, the group disbands to pursue solo careers. Lauren Hill and Wyclef broke up. They had been in a romantic relationship uh, from about 92 to 97 when they went their separate ways. And they all had, pretty successful careers. Praz's musical career was wasn't say, huge. Praz. And we'll we'll get into some of Praz's other career yeah. exploits. This guy's got a resume. <laughs> the guy's got a resume. Lauren Hill began as a writer and producer for other artists, including Whitney Houston. She worked with Aretha Franklin, Mary J. Blige. And then she released a seminal album called the Miseducation of Lauren Hill. That came out in 98. Ooh. Iconic. Sorry. But it's so good. We need like a... Ever. After we after we do a few episodes, we need to like maybe on the Twitter or something put out like a bingo card and like one of those, one of the squares is going to be like someone says iconic. <laughs> like that might even be a free space. All hosts <laughs> say iconic within a single minute. 
Wyclef puts out his first solo album called The Carnival in 1997, which is almost like a, another Fuji's album because both Lauren Hill and Praz are yeah, featured on it, that it album. Does, it's a spiritual sequel to the score, for sure. But they only briefly reunite ever after that. They tried to do a reunion tour. They did do a reunion tour in 2005, but after that tour was supposed to set up a reunion album and that album never materialized. And some of the members spoke to the press after this tour and said, this tour was premature. We needed to work together first. And both Praz and, um, and Wyclef while pointing out Lauren Hill's artistic genius cited creative differences with her and that she was, not easy to work with. There's an amazing quote from Praz. This is just too good. This is from August 2007. Praz Michelle says, Before I work with Lauren Hill again, you will have a better chance of seeing Osama Bin Laden and George W. Bush in Starbucks having a <laughs> latte discussing foreign policies before there will be a Fuji's reunion. He had no idea how accurate that would be in <laughs> some years later. Yeah. Yeah, right, exactly. And then one of the creative differences was that Lauren didn't want to put out a song called Lips Don't Lie. So instead, that song became Hips Don't Lie by Shakira featuring Wyclef and was a global number one sensation. I had no I, idea that was. I'm learning so much on the podcast. I, think I, 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 I really <laughs> wonder what that, what the original "Lips Don't Lie" sounded like because, like, just imagine that being Lauren Hill's song and just an absolute smash. Mm-hmm. Like that song is still a f- smash to this day. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. If it was a Lauren Hill track, they get someone's gotta <laughs> dig up that crate. Wink, wink. I'll, 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 wink, wink. Find, I'll go searching through some vinyls, maybe. No, um, <laughs> it would be, it would be an interesting song. Well, I definitely think like the whole, it would be a very different vibe because with Shakira, it's very much you know like a kind of upbeat, it's the chorus sort of thing. I, I don't imagine Lauren on that kind of beat, you know, on that kind of wave. Me neither. Of like a sort of fast-paced latin up-tempo dance kind of track and every everyone wants more lauren hill music and she's she's like one of those those eccentric geniuses who just kind of disappears like a jd salinger Andre 3000 or a, type you know mm-hmm. or a j electronica yeah j yeah j Elec. yeah yasin bay formerly known as most deaf yeah, that's interesting in hip hop. Certain artists can just like fall out, like release like a verse and then fall off the face of the earth for seven years, but then everyone's just like, oh, like they're a genius.
since it's the theme of our podcast, Wyclef has talked a lot about his identity as an immigrant and his immigrant upbringing. The future album is called Carnival Volume 2, Memoirs of an Immigrant, uh, which features Akon, our, our favorite guy, our favorite, you know, diamond miner. And then he put out a memoir in 2012 called Purpose, an Immigrant Story. With that, Jami, kick it off with your greatest hits, greatest bars. All right. Yeah. Um, this uh, last week, kind of listening to Fuji's music, it's been pretty fun because they, I mean, they just have so many hits, you know, they have, and and the, the other thing I, I would say, in addition to the hits, they, the Fuji's, well, Fuji's, they are sampled a lot, you know, in 2023, you know, their songs are still being sampled. So, um, to the point of them only having two albums, they've clearly influenced several decades later, several new generations. And it's, it's just kind of a testament to the fact that, that good music, uh, lives forever. So before I get into the to their song specifically while i was listening checking out their catalog um i heard a familiar piece of audio that is sampled in drake's song energy so the fuji song how hard is it um i I think at the beginning or somewhere in the in the middle of the track it goes liquid means rewind the gunshot means forward uh, which I, which, which I never paid attention to, um, but when I listened back and heard it, I'm like, oh wait, this is, this is uh, sampled on Drake's song Energy, um, so I wanted to like really figure out like what that phrase, like what's the origin of that phrase. The phrase is in reference to sound clash culture, um, and if you guys aren't familiar with sound clash culture. It's a, it's essentially a Jamaican slash Caribbean um, musical competitions between uh, competing crews and DJs. So pretty much picture like picture like a versus, but this is between like competing DJs, uh, kind of just to see which DJ has the best set and can kind of like get the crowd the most um, the most hyped up. So. The term liquid refers to hitting hitting the wall enthusiastically, just kind of like banging on a wall or like surface, um, to, which signifies to the DJ that, that the crowd is like really feeling whatever song was just played. The more like a very enthusiastic liquid would tend to like cause the DJ to like run that track back. So like as a DJ, if you play just like just an absolute banger of a song and then the crowd goes insane and starts banging on the walls, like you'd be inclined to to run the track back another time. So I thought that was cool. Gunshot or air horn signifies like still like approval, but um, to like signifies to the DJ like, all right, that was hot. Let's hear the next. Like, let's see what else you got. Let's go to the next track. So I thought that was cool. Um allusions to some pretty not well-known jamaican music culture thrown into mainstream american hip-hop 
though it's and it's funny though at the same time the ways that it mirrors sort of hip-hop culture right because that the what you were just describing now to me johnny is like old yeah. school dj beat absolutely you know, basically but like um, mm-hmm. with a more jamaican kind of you know dance hall absolutely. sort of vibe no I, I thought that was super cool um and this i mean there's connections there too though like dj cool mm-hmm. herc is from jamaica um so it's all it's all connected that's right yep. Make good means rewind, the gun jet made forward. Um, the members oh, yeah. of the group have uh, also shined individually, as we've kind of alluded to. Miseducation of Lauryn Hill is widely considered one of the best rap albums of all time. Wyclef has, has had an amazing run of his his albums, but also like a ton of legendary features and just like Lucy singles. But as far as Fuji's greatest hits, I'm just going to kind of run down the list. Obviously killing me softly with his song from the score ready or not ready or not from, uh, from the score Fuji La, uh, no woman, no cry. Zealots, which we heard a little little peak of earlier. Yeah, that song is absolutely insane. Zealots, that's one of my um, favorites. The Mask, which I love because it's got great storytelling and just like witty, like clever bars. Mm-hmm. Segwaying mm-hmm. over to Blunted on Reality, there's Recharge, Vocab, and Giggles were a few of my a few of my top tracks. For Wyclef's hits. Um, th- these were kind of more like personal preference. Um, but he's got a, he's, he's got like a sample slash like rendition of, uh, of the song Guantanamera by, uh, Jose, Josecito Fernandez and absolute smash. If you guys haven't heard that one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, his Guantanamera <laughs> is so good. It's so um, sweetest girl. Yeah, it's really good. Sweetest girl, Dollar Bill. That song is sweet. Uh, Hips don't lie. As as we got into Shakira featuring Wyclef, Maria Maria, another just that that guitar. The guitar in that song is just absolutely iconic. There it is. Get your bingo cards out for Lauren Hill. The song Doop that thing, uh, prob. I would say probably her most like recognizable and just like popular song. Um, that's from Miseducation. Lost Ones. It's also just a fire track. Personally, I love. I used to love him mm, on also on Miseducation. And then, yeah, and then uh, Nobody. Uh, Lauren Hill's feature on Nas's King's Disease Two, which is which is one of my favorite albums, actually probably my favorite album from that year uh, on the hip hop side. Um, a lot of good music came out in 2021, but that was probably my favorite album mm-hmm. of that year. Um, I didn't really get a good lo- uh, opportunity to lock into Proz's music, um, but he does, but he seems to have, uh, at least one like full length album 
I'll just add that Proz is really well known for Ghetto Superstar with Old Dirty Bastard. And ODB. And that's what a lot of the mm-hmm. news coverage of his jury guilty verdict identifies him as the ghetto superstar entertainer. Yeah. That might might even be in the DOJ press release. But yeah, as far as greatest bars, this isn't a, this isn't a Fuji's bar necessarily, but it is from a Lauren Hill verse on the song. Nobody by Nas from King's disease Two. Um, I couldn't really pick out like, four four bars or whatever like from the verse so i'm just gonna like just run through like the entire verse because <laughs> because do. it's actually just yeah it's it's it, incredible like verse. nelson said like this was probably my favorite verse that came out that that year <clears throat> all my time has been focused on my freedom now why would i join them when i know that i can beat them now they put their words on me and they can eat them now that's probably why they keep on telling me i'm needed now they try to box me out while taking what they want from me. I spent too many years living too uncomfortably, making room for people who didn't like the labor or wanted the spoils, greedy, selfish behavior. Now let me give it to you balanced with some clarity. I don't need to turn myself into a parody. I don't do the shit you do for popularity. They clearly didn't understand when I said I get out, apparently. My awareness like Keanu in the Matrix. I'm saving souls and y'all complaining about my lateness. Now it's illegal for someone to walk in greatness. They want the same shit, but they don't take risks. Now the world will get to see its own reflection. And the anointed can pursue their own direction. And if you're wrong and you're too proud to hear correction, walk into the hole you dug yourself. Fuck a projection. See me and my freedom taking all my land back. They sent a lot against me thinking I just stand back. A lot of people sabotaged. They couldn't stand that. I turned the other cheek. I took blow after blow. There's so much crisis in the world because you reap what you sow. When you keep what you know is meant for someone else, the ditch you dig for them, you might just end up in yourself. I'm in a secret place. I keep a sacred space. They keep showing their hands, but keep hiding their face. If I'm the messenger, you block me, then you block the message. So aggressive, the world you made is what you're left with. Pride and ego over love and truth is fucking reckless. Y'all got a death wish. This stupid shit leaves me breathless. That was the worst. Damn. Yeah, I'm definitely gonna listen to this song right after this. This is like her coming out right out of the gate after like years, maybe decades of not dropping a When was the last time? Right, I I heard that... I heard that and I'm like, yo, who who did Lauren just come out like absolutely pissed at? <laughs> Promise, should we move on to you to bring us into some of the the hot tea about this group? Let's do it. Let's let's Ooh. get into my favorite little piece of the so much. history. Um, it's funny what I'm talking about. I'm gonna, be, I think everything I'm gonna talk about happened in 2010. I was 16 years old, high school, and this all of this had such a lasting impression on me. Um, and now I'm looking back at it in preparation for this podcast. And what I'm talking about is Wyclef running for president in Haiti. 
he you know he, it, this happens with musicians all the time right like they have political content in their music and that politics spilled spills, spills over into actual politics um so Wyclef who was born in Haiti um came to the US uh, as a child um and um and has always been you know connected to uh his his homeland so much so that in 2007 he was appointed by the uh president of Haiti as this kind of ambassador at large position kind of like the you know the global ambassador for for Haiti the the representative the cultural representative of, of the country um i guess he took that position seriously cuz 3 years later in 2010 he filed uh to run for president and like i said before i was 16 and for some reason in my mind this presidential campaign is just it's just ingrained but i'm looking back at news articles about it and this campaign lasted not more than 15 days he announced <laughs> he announced he was running for president and then the you know the electoral council you know that that department in haiti just immediately comes out and be like you don't live in haiti uh, you have to be a resident of haiti for five years in order to run for for uh for president and so 15 ish days two weeks after he announces they come back and say like you are just not not eligible to run for president and he says okay i respect that and that's that's it that's the end of, end of story for that campaign grand, grand opening grand right. closing and for some reason in my mind like dude because i remember that in that same way of like I remember back in the day, it was like, exactly. wow, why can't exactly. president? It just, to me, felt like a well, full and I campaign. And I remember it as being a whole well, thing. What was he, was he living in like LA or it something? It must have been, he was in Jersey or wherever he lived at the time. Um, and I'm sure he had some like physical presence in Haiti. Um, but, right. you know, August 5th announces on Wolf Blitzer's show on CNN that yes I'm running for president. <laughs> and then August August twentieth, <laughs> boom, it's over. I'm gonna I gotta pull that audio. I will pull Wolf Blitzer <laughs> Clef audio and put it in the pot. You've been thinking about this for a long time, running for president of Haiti. This is not a decision you just recently made. I mean Wolf to be honest with you the idea of being part of my country was always in my mind. But after January 12th, the day after coming and being out here with my wife and picking up dead bodies from the ground, I, I, I felt that because of the youth of Haiti and the population, that this is not even Wyclef saying that I want to be the president of Haiti. I feel like I'm being drafted by the population right now to give them a different face, a different voice. Um, and, 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 Wolf, I want to tell you, despite what you're hearing with the 10 cities, there's a crowd behind me right now with so much excitement because they feel hope is on its way. How would you describe uh, your political ideology, Wycliffe? I love that. Um, but also 2010 was a major <laughs> year for, for uh, Wycliffe for very sad reasons. There's a massive um, earthquake in Haiti. Oh, right. And Wyclef also organized a um, uh, a good number of relief efforts, including um, everybody's favorite uh, telethon, uh, Hope for Haiti. It's just, yeah, for some reason, I don't know what it is, but Wyclef 
in the year 2010 was just on my mind day in day out <laughs> the the presidential campaign God, yeah. I didn't even realize it was 15 days. It's, it's it just seems like so a more funny. significant chapter uh, in his life. Shorter than William Henry Harrison's presidency. <laughs> um, the One of the things that I find funniest or most ironic about it is, is one of my favorite Wyclef songs. It's called it's If I Was President. This is a song he put out, I think it was in the 2004... George W. versus John Kerry presidential campaign. He puts out this song. I think he performs it on the Chappelle show and he puts out a separate video. If I was president, I'd get elected on Friday, assassinated on Saturday, buried on Sunday. Now remember go that back song. To work on Is there a reason you pick Friday? Like, historically the presidential election happens on tuesday the like, recount reason because it's wyclef it's so close because people are on you know aren't sure about <laughs> voting for a rapper the recount lasts until friday and then he's officially elected uh right biden was elected on a friday after like Sidney powell yeah. filed eight thousand lawsuits <laughs> it's an amazing song it's an amazing protest song and like the crux of the song is basically that like a good president who like actually stands for the people like would be assassinated. And the system is like not built to support someone like that. But like somehow in his head, this turns into maybe I should run for president of Haiti, a country where I haven't lived since I was a child. Right. <laughs> and then, then he, he actually puts out an EP after his, presidential disqualification called if i were president my haitian experience i have not yet given that one a listen though there is also an if i was president 2016 but it's like this like weird like hokey trying to be funny video the whole if i was president thing is just like a downward yeah. spiral but it starts <laughs> just starts strong version of the song that's when the vulture devours if i was president i get elected on friday assassinated on saturday buried on sunday they go back to work on monday if i was president it's a time to talk about the pros michelle's trial <laughs> We've been kind of alluding to this the whole episode, y'all. It is wild. Man. I think it's important to say we had this episode planned before yeah, this news that's broke. that's true. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, the timing really just, worked like, out for us. oh my yeah. gosh, this has just but, been crazy. Yeah, so in terms of, like, kind of current <laughs> context of, you know, the Fugees, what are they up to today? Um... You know, Wyclef has had a pretty successful solo career, as we covered, dropping singles. And, you know, he continues to drop singles and albums of varying quality. Lauren has continued to be a very sort of enigmatic, almost mythical kind of figure within the culture who, you know, will occasionally just, like, pop up yes. and perform somewhere or, like, pop up on a random tour. Though she has built up a reputation she kind of alluded to this in the uh the nobody verse that johnny read earlier she's gotten a reputation for tardiness 
and uh, sometimes even no-shows to the point where it's sort of like this running joke about Lauren Hill now, like, oh, you actually saw Lauren Hill when you got, you know, if you get a ticket for one of her concerts or something like that. But, you know, she has, she's clearly self-aware about it and has, you know, kind of claps back. Complain about my lateness. I'm out here putting out that work. I'm I'm saving souls. (laughs) Mm -hmm. She's saving souls. That's pretty Um, great. I gotta use that next time I'm late to court or something. You gonna get yeah, on so... me for being late? I'm busy saving souls. <laughs> <laughs> that is hilarious. Oh my god, that's funny. Um, and fun fact as well, this year will actually mark the 25th anniversary of Miseducation. That'll be on June 17th. But the the big one... Praz never really took off like that. You know, he has done solo work and he did work, you know, with ODB and like pops up in places from time to time. I think he was in like a action movie with Ja Rule at one point. What? What movie is that? I don't know. I remember he was like, I just remember because it's a Boondocks comic making fun of it. But um, it's like Praz and Ja Rule or some other like kind of mid tier 90s rapper and they're just like in this really goofy action it's called turn it up yeah it came out in 2000 there you go oh i'm i'm gonna watch this <laughs> it has jason Start- statham pros michelle job rule oh my god all right move on <laughs> yes um but you know he was doing stuff like that right so his name hadn't really come up outside of a, like a Fuji's context in headlines in a while until this broke which is just like almost like a kind of mad libs style of kind of random mashup of headlines of like what are you what is this that like because, okay, so he was recently found guilty, what was it, like 10 federal counts? 10 federal counts. 10 federal counts, specifically charged with conspiracy, witness tampering, failing to register as acting on behalf of a foreign agent, uh, these kinds of things, after his work with a Malaysian billionaire named Jolo. Um, Jolo, which I have to keep reminding myself is not J Lo. It's not J Lo. Not like sometimes I read it and slightly I'm like, different. <laughs> sometimes I read it and I was like, "Why is Pras in trouble for helping J Lo?" And then I'm like, "Oh wait, that's not what this is." Um, Listen, J Lo doesn't need to pay Pras to get a picture with the Obama. That's true. <laughs> um, because basic that is what happened. Um. Praz received like a million dollars. I think over the course of their relationship, Praz received a hundred million dollars yes. from Jolo. Yeah, the, like the first incident or like, you know, time when this happened was um, in 2012. Jolo paid a million dollars to get him a picture with Barack and Michelle, which he did. They kind of continued that sort of relationship where Jolo would give money to Praz and Praz would like, get him in certain rooms or you know etc etc if one wants to be more optimistic and kind of take pros at his word 
just you know helping a buddy who happens to be a billionaire getting rooms and you know get pictures yeah. with famous people <clears throat> and whatnot if one is a this bit this is more just s- what friends do <laughs> yes i mean um barack obama definitely had some fujis on his uh on his summer playlist that he releases every year so like the true. avenue was there <laughs> like right he didn't have any Jolo on the list. <laughs> Jolo's new track on the floor featuring Shakira. <laughs> Jolo was basically, you know, using Praz as a kind of lobbying agent to get him in different rooms, and they eventually obviously got caught. He was meeting with the FBI or and DOJ and other at this point it was Trump administration officials to try to pressure them to extradite a Chinese national to China. And the whole reason he was doing this is because Jolo had got fallen into some in Malaysia because he embezzled like billions of dollars from Malaysia's national bank pretty much. And so Jolo wanted to curry favor with the Chinese and the Chinese told Jolo, okay, can you get the U.S. to extradite this Chinese dissident back to us? And so Jolo goes, hmm, who can help me with this? Maybe Praz Michelle. <laughs> so on the one hand, he's like <laughs> trying to rehabilitate in the U.S.'s eyes, the image of this corrupt Malaysian billionaire. At the same time, on that billionaire's behest, he's trying to talk the U.S. into extraditing a Chinese national back to China for prosecution. And he's definitely not an informant. Like, you said around, Nelson, the 50-cent thing. Like, I knew this snitch was a rat, blah, blah, blah. No, he's actually literally meeting with the FBI to tr- to like talk them into doing things. He's not being an informant. Guys, you cannot make this stuff up. Like Oops. I it's so fascinating how much like real life can throw these curveballs and be more interesting than some of the stuff that we make up. It's kind of like Dennis Rodman and North oh, Korea, yeah. now. like, like Kim Jong Un, like strikingly similar to that. <laughs> it's, it's like these two people who would never, who would never in a million years be connected to each other, and there's like shady behind closed doors deals to kind of like lobby this sketchy guy for <laughs> for the United States government. Like weird, just weird. <laughs> But it really keeps, like, the allure of spying alive. It's like, really, Proz? Like, Dennis Rodman? It's like, maybe spies do exist. Maybe they are good at their jobs. Yeah, man. Proz is on, like, some Jason Bourne type-ish. But now he's got... Now he's been caught for it. He has been convicted on all counts. And, you know, his lawyer has said that they're going to appeal of course, and that, you know, they're confident the evidence is on their side. Blah, the, blah. the funny, one of the funny things oh. is, and Carrie, sorry if I'm, if this is a spoiler alert, but <laughs> that movie, Turn It Up, is actually, Praz's character in that movie actually gets sent to prison <laughs> for fraud. 
Why are these guys like manifesting their futures in film? And if I was president, it's like oh, that should have been his excuse. I was just filming turning it up too. <laughs> right. It is. <laughs> oh, I, this was research for turning it up too. You know, one thing that I thought was, I was actually the role. a possibly good yeah. defense on Praz's part, and I don't know all the elements of these federal offenses that he was charged with, but he kept saying that the money he was given by Jolo basically had no strings attached. Like, uh, one of the parts of Praz's testimony that was quoted a lot is he says, I could have done anything with that money if I wanted to. I could have bought eight elephants with that money. And it's kind of believable because so there's all these celebrities who have stories about Jolo because he really ingratiated himself with kind of U.S. celebrity culture. He knew Paris Hilton. He knew Kim Kardashian. He knew Leonardo, Leonardo DiCaprio. DiCaprio. He, like bank, he bankrolled Wolf of Wall Street. He bankrolled the Wolf of Wall Street. And yeah, Leo DiCaprio that. was a witness in this trial who testified. Also, Jeff Sessions testified, and there was there was thought that even no Obama and Trump were going to testify, what? but they didn't. But Jeff Sessions and DiCaprio testified about DiCaprio about his knowledge of Jolo, and DiCaprio's testimony was called by the government, but it's actually somewhat more favorable to Praz because what Leo says is, yeah, Jolo wanted to bankroll Wolf of Wall Street. And our lawyers looked into him, and we didn't see a problem with it, and it was fine. And he did go ahead and bankroll him. But I do think that there's evidence that this is a guy who is spending you money just lavishly, buying out, you know, all the bottles in a bar for everyone. Kim Kardashian has a story of seeing him at a casino and he's like giving away poker chips and he gives her like more than half a million worth of poker chips just like because. So like this is a guy who throws away money over nothing. So I think it is maybe believable and maybe a decent defense that he was that Jolo was just trying to cultivate this friendship with Praz by giving him lavish gifts and at the same time you know they were having conversations about favors where it's it's a may, maybe there's a quid pro quo there but it's a bit more casual than Praz was working as an unregistered foreign agent and maybe that's what the appeal will look like Honestly, I would kind of believe if that was the real situation, too, because that's a very, like, you know, kind of rapper thing to do. Like, some guy shows up like, hey, if I give you a bunch of money, can you introduce me to some of your famous friends? And then the rapper will be like, yeah, sure. I don't know. Stranger things have happened. Free pros. That's what I say. Do we? Yeah, I was going to say, do we think pros will get pardoned? (laughs) Pardoned pros. Not by Biden. (laughs) Not by Biden. Trump will get real when Trump gets reelected. Okay. He will just for fun because he likes to pardon rappers. Yes, yeah, that's yeah. Unfortunately, that. I think Trump is the is the most likely um, chance of Proz getting pardoned. So Trump twenty twenty four, 
free prize. <laughs> Kim Kardashian will meet with Trump to <laughs> ask him to pardon Praz. And uh, also worth mentioning that Jolo is a co-defendant in this case, but he's a fugitive. He's thought to be somewhere in China. So mm. the guy they have, they're going to throw the whole book at him. This is a sick, sick, sick f***ing world. It is so wild. <laughs> like, I could not have freaking imagined this. This is know, crazy. Not, and it kind of had, it has completely dashed any hopes of a Fuji's reunion. They were, they were supposed to oh, do a tour. Oh, you could say that again. <laughs> they were supposed to do a tour, like, two years ago. Like, 20 Maybe Ja Rule can stand in. <laughs> yeah, they were supposed to do a reunion tour in... 21 to celebrate 25 years of the score. I think that got scuttled. Canceled partially due to COVID, but also due to Praz's legal issues. There was there had been continued speculation about a new tour, but not anymore. Which is a shame because not only are the Fuji's a legend, but I also feel like Praz is kind of an underrated component of the group. Like he gets clowned a little bit sometimes as like the guy who was also there, you know, cause, but I feel like that's also partially because Wyclef and Lauren are both such big personalities that they take up a lot of space and attention. But Praz, I feel like provided a more grounding, you know, like down to earth element almost with the sort of, and he has bars. He's got yeah. like very grimy kind of like. He can rap. Yeah, he's like sort of street kind of rap as opposed to you know the something that gets a bit more conceptual or abstract with Wyclef or Lauren that really kind of grounds the score. I feel like and really, you know, is an element that is missing without him. That that they I don't think they ever really recaptured in any of their solo work even though, you know, it was phenomenal and, you know, it did its own thing and it was different, but it wasn't what, you know, that kind of magic that the Fugees had yeah. that really only comes together when the three of them are together. Well, this has been great, guys. I think I got a wrap, but a true pleasure as always. Man, this <clears throat> this was a fun episode. Yeah, man, the Fugees, the Fugees, the, I'll one. tell you what, the score was one of my first hip-hop albums. Nelson, it's amazing that as a nine-year-old, you you know music that that goes that far back. Yeah. (laughs) You know, I'm a cultured young man. Did his his history. (laughs) The internet, you know. Until next time, guys, check us out. Peace, peace. Um, Check us out on Spotify, Apple Podcasts. We've got um, episode four is going to be a good one coming up relatively soon. Yes, it is. Hopefully not as much of a break. And once again, a very special shout out to all of our listeners in Vienna, Austria. Um, Once again, consistently consistently one of our higher cities. Let's get it. Um, Um, And we also, we have listeners in India. So shout out mm -hmm. to the folks in India. And I'm sure one day we'll unpack those very India specific immigration issues, uh, such as, you know, H-1B lottery, visa bulletin backlogs that affect Indians much worse than everyone else. You are very vocal on Twitter about those India-specific immigration issues. We, we hear you. We hear you.
documented dreamers. Lot to unpack, but that's for another day. With love, signing off. This is the White Wizard, Carrie. And this is the Brown Wizard, Ramos. <laughs> God damn it. And I'm John the Astute. Check you guys next time. Peace. This is Nelson the Mayan, Fear of a Border Planet, signing off till next time. Peace, love, and solidarity, folks. Keep your heads up. Rest in peace to all our hip-hop folks that we've lost in the month that we've been away. Too many to name. And free pros. You just heard an episode of Fear of a Border Planet, a podcast written, produced, and edited by the hosts, Johnny, Carrie, Nelson, and Ramis. Please subscribe to Fear of a Border Planet on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Also, check out our Fear of a Border Planet playlist on Apple and Spotify so you too can listen to the music discussed on the pod. Fear of a Border Planet does not own the rights to any music featured here, so if you're a studio bigwig who does own the rights and you believe our inclusion of the music is not fair use, please send us a politely worded cease and desist. As always, the views expressed in this pod are solely those of the hosts and our agreeable listeners, not any of our employers or the feds. Thanks for listening all the way to the end. Catch you later. And fuck Ronald Reagan. <laughs>